Welcome to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast with Petra and Perks. This podcast is simple. We want to go beyond bubble bath wellbeing and think deeply about the world we live in and what it really takes to thrive. This includes things like activism at work, challenging the cult in culture, and of course, having brave conversations that lead the way in building a future of work that we want to be part of, including making benefits inclusive for all. So let's dive into our next episode. Welcome everyone to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. This is an exciting one for me. I love it when I can call on someone I not only work with, but I've seen do their thing and has an incredible uh, story, but also can count as a friend. So um, welcome Emily Warren to the show. Uh, It's great to have you. Now, you are the Director and Global Wellbeing Lead for Avanade. That's already a total mouthful, and I know you've been doing it for a little while. Uh, you, I mean, you're a specialist in employee experience. Uh, you, you, you work globally, so there's that cultural element. And then I also noticed you have a degree in physics and astrophysics. Like, I'm like, I want to talk about other stuff now because I'm like, my mind is blown. I'm fascinated by this. What, wait, what got you onto that path is what I want to know. Um, well, I think at school, we were just encouraged to kind of do what we were best at. Um, and so all the way through, I was really strong at sciences, really strong at math. So I just kept on picking those things that I was best at. I did really quite love physics when I was a kid. Um, but what I found as I sort of went through A-levels and university was it got more mathematical, less conceptual, and I kind of fell out of love with it a bit. Um, and what struck me looking back is that nobody ever asked me, what do you love doing? What kind of brings you joy? And and I think I would have made maybe different choices about what I would have studied if if I'd thought about that. But you know that's that's kind of how I got into physics. But I, I loved um, when I was a kid. I really loved just looking at the sky and the enormity of it, and it it made me feel kind of insignificant, but in a good way. Like my problems were always smaller because if I was insignificant, then my problems were nothing in the kind of grand scale of the cosmos. So I always found that kind of reassuring. And I was fascinated with how, you know, the planets worked and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's it's not something I, I, I ended up with as a career as the, as a result, but. But what a beautiful way to actually get started and get a little bit of perspective, because I think in our workplaces with the well-being agenda and mental health and workplace and evolving the workplaces for the future, and I know you work tirelessly on this topic, as as do I, but also to get that perspective of like, well, what, what actually matters in the world, right? How insignificant are we in the grand scheme of things, right? And it does become, yes, it's about the big strategies, but it's also just about the joy, the little human interactions, which I think we're forgetting in these sorts of well-being roles sometimes. Yeah, I mean, at the, I, I've got about 17,000, 18,000 people I look after. So, you know, on one side, you're kind of thinking, well, what can we do that's big, that's going to affect everybody? And thinking in ways of, can we shift people's ex- employee experience just that little bit? Because if you can improve it a little bit for a lot of people, you can have a massive impact. But then on the other hand, sometimes I have to kind of remind myself that actually at the end of every single story, there's a real person. And one, you know, one day in the past, that was me. And I'm, you know, I still think about that and am incredibly grateful for that because it was, it was down to one person knowing me, recognizing that I'd asked a question that was out of character 
they coming to me and saying, are you all right? That sort of really changed the course of, you know, my life at that point and ultimately my career afterwards. Um, but so I, I have to try and, you know, remember sometimes that, you know, there is always a personal story and you may look at some of these things and go, okay, well, it's one or two people out of 17,000. What difference does that really make? Well, to the person who that is, it can be life-changing. And so I think you've got to be able to have that kind of big perspective and look at, you know, everybody um, and, you know, think sort of big strategically, but you've also got to be able to think about each individual and what difference you can make in their lives because it can be profound. And this is what I've always admired about you from like the very beginning for, of us knowing each other is that no matter how big your role got, and I know it's global and I want to pick your brain on that a little bit, you have been one of those people that have kept the heart of it, right? You have kept your story, um, uh, has influenced your passion, I guess, to remember the one human at the end, right? Because it's kind of tricky to do that sometimes when you're asked about targets and scale and budgets. And I know some of the things that, that you've got going on. So, so what was just a little bit of your story? Like what led you to, to being passionate and that one person noticing? So, um, I mean, we've got to go back to, I think it's 20, 2012. And um, I was working on a project. So at this time, I was a consultant in the software industry, I, the same company that I work for now, but in our consulting working force. I was working away from home. We were working very, very long hours. And I was um, also moving house. And our house move went really, really wrong in quite a spectacular way. And um, the house that we were moving into got flooded and we weren't able to move in for various legal reasons. <laughs> the vendor wasn't liable for it. It wasn't insured. So the house move went very, very wrong. And um, what should have been a straightforward house move um, ended up with our house getting flooded. Our... <laughs> For various legal reasons, our vendor wasn't liable for it. We we ended up not being insured for it. They weren't insured for it. Just horrible situation. So we went overnight from being, you know, financially secure and looking towards a new house um, to being effectively homeless. Um, our house was unlivable. And, you know, it, a very, very stressful situation where we were basically just staying in um, B&Bs or on, you know, friends in friends' houses for the next sort of three months as we got our house to a fairly basic state as we dried it out, we were taking, you know, 60 litres of water out of the out of the house every day and um dehumidifiers. So it was just it was just a really stressful period. But I went back to work. And the reason I went back to work, um, as you know, as planned after this aborted house move was because I felt I had to you know that the project team was saying you know we're relying on you <laughs> you need to be here um and and I didn't feel that I could take a step back I'm the main earner we were in financial trouble you know we've got we were financially secure and we'd moved to this Worse. house that's now a complete you know bomb site. And you know we're suffering sort of a big financial shock, and I'm thinking, well, I've got to, I've got to go back to work. I've got to keep paying for this. And the people on my project, they're all very sympathetic, but you know, looking back on it, I always blamed myself for my burnout and not sort of saying I need some time. But now I kind of look at it with my sort of more strategic lens on. I'm like, well, where was the opportunity created for me to say something? You know, they all knew what I'd been through. 
nobody said, do you think you might need to talk to somebody about that? That sounds really stressful. Or maybe you should take an extra couple of days and make sure that you've got somewhere to, to live. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your basic needs met, yeah. right? I mean, they did. To be fair, they did offer to house us, but up in Warrington, which is no use for you know my husband, who's trying to um, you know get our house livable back in Oxford. So you know, there, there were things that that you know the team did right around me at that point, but there's things that I definitely look at in retrospect and think, actually, what can we do differently? So I just carried on. Basically, I carried on working. Um, went went back to work. But what happened over the next couple of years is my anxiety got worse and worse. And mm. Year, years, though, that's interesting. Like the build up yeah. took a good long time. So it was about two years it took. And, um, you know, what, what I'd realized was um, something can happen out of the blue that you're not even expecting. So my brain was kind of going, OK, well, the worst can happen. So what else is going to go wrong? And I was very aware that I was still away on projects, traveling, and my husband was back here. Um, no, he'd be up in the roof and, you know, climbing climbing around the loft and all of these things by himself, you know, in, in you know, not in unsafe circumstances, but certainly in slightly precarious ones. So that kind of just that just gnawed away at me, I think, for for the next couple of years. And I carried on working, you know, long hours in a demanding job. And actually, we, were, we weren't married at the time, so we were also planning a wedding. So we'd moved house, we're planning a wedding, and <laughs> this demanding Goodness. job. And we're effectively trying to renovate the house around us as well, because it was, you know, a, a, a mess. Um, and, and, and in the end, um, what happened was I was working away in Colchester, and there was actually flooding in Oxford um, from from the River Thames bursting its banks and a load of houses that got, got flooded. And it was on the news. So I was sort of stood there just before I was about to go to client site in the morning in my hotel, had the had the news on in the background while I was getting ready. And this news story came on with this. And, and they interviewed this lady whose house had just been flooded. And I just started crying. And I couldn't stop. And... It was the look on her face just kind of connected in something with me. And even though, you know, it, it for us, it had been an internal flood, not an external flood. So it was a kind of different, you know, different circumstance. It was this, you know, I could relate to that feeling of, of that loss of security. And so I cried my way into work and cried my way back to my hotel um, for about, I don't know, two to three weeks, getting increasingly, you know, <laughs> fraught, um, struggling to keep that mask on. I was I was very consciously sat in the car park before I got out of my car at the office going, right, get your game face on. But I think the cracks were, were starting to show. And um, I luckily was, <laughs> was on a... Uh, a leadership program at the time and I had an executive coach and I was in a coaching session with her and um you know she was like how's it going and I I started crying <laughs> um and sure. explained to her that you know I wasn't in a good way and she said what do you want to happen and I said oh, I just want it to stop <laughs> I just I just wanted to stop now um and I was by this point the shame was so acute that I wasn't able to cope and 
I would yeah. think so. It's, what what was the shame? What what were? Well, yeah, I, tell me more about that. You know, my mental picture of myself was always somebody who was strong. I was always helping other people. I was always very independent. Um, and the you know, as as far as you know, we're two years later at this point, and as far as where I was concerned is, I wasn't coping with. You know, I was working on four projects. I was getting married. I was renovating a house, and I wasn't coping with that. And you know, I I, I spoke to a counsellor sort of sh- shortly after after my burnout um, sort of you know happened, and and I, I yeah. got signed off from work. And she, and she she sort of said, you know, that sounds like an awful lot. Any one of those would be a stressor. And I remember replying, um, yeah, but when our house got flooded two years ago and we were homeless and I was working 16 hour days I dealt with that all right and she just looked at me and she said and when did you stop and deal with that and that was the first time I realized that it wasn't just what was going on in that moment it was everything I've been carrying for the previous two years and I was just really lucky that you know I had that coach she sort of persuaded me that I had to do something, I had to take some action. And the action we agreed on was for me to ask for our sabbatical policy. So I then wrote to our HR team and said, can I have the sabbatical policy? And this is where the personal bit comes in. Um, Because the person who received that email looked at it and thought, that's one of our most enthusiastic and dedicated employees better just check that something that everything's okay something's going on yeah, yeah. she just thought that doesn't quite smell right <laughs> something wrong, not quite right here i'll just check and of course as soon as she got on the phone to me and said emily is everything okay and that's all it took by that point you know i couldn't is some if somebody asked i couldn't mask it anymore and i just burst into tears and she you know she she was saying are you okay to work? Thinking, you know, I'd say no. And I'm, and I'm literally sobbing down the phone to her going, yes, I'm fine. I can keep going. Um, and and she, she, bless her, managed to persuade me to tell a couple of people, my, my um, department head. And it kind of... What, do, you th- do you think you just didn't want to... Was it just habit or you didn't want to let people down to say, I guess I can still work? It what no, it wasn't it wasn't habit. It was it was an acute sense of of shame that I was letting people down. The people who were the hardest to tell were the people I respected the most. Um and it took, you know, so I had the executive coach, I had my um HR rep, I had my departmental lead. I had my career advisor. They between them, they kind of shipped me off to the doctor. And only when the doctor signed me off did I kind of go, okay, I'll stop. But I didn't wow. know how. And no. it took, you know, I, I think I got worse for the first couple of weeks. And then and then I kind of said, okay, I'll start taking the antidepressants and and <laughs> the mindfulness training. Oh God, that's a that's a funny one. I um just to show where my head was at during all of this, um, I signed up to a one month mindfulness course, and at the time I'd been signed off for two weeks, and I think my doctor did that very purposefully. She signed me off a couple of weeks at a time. I think if she signed me off for two months from the word go, I'd have had a meltdown about it. Um, but so I'm signed off for two weeks. I've got a one month mindfulness course I've signed up to, and I'm thinking, well, if I meditate really hard. <laughs> 
<laughs> in two weeks. Can I squeeze my mindfulness course into into two weeks? Which is like you're trying to hack mindfulness. Crazy yeah. when you think about it. It's like if I relax really hard, I can squeeze two weeks holiday into one. And of course you can't. But that's just that's just where my my head was at. And what was really scary for me as I started kind of appreciating this at the time was, you know, my I've built a career out of being able to think about large amounts of information and draw those draw those together and make conclusions, make logical conclusions from lots of disparate pieces of information. And, you know, my logical reasoning is really one of my main skills. And actually, where my brain was at at that time, I was going A to B to C to F, you know, to Z to Z and ending up somewhere completely different. And I realized that I couldn't trust my own thoughts. And that was kind of terrifying. That's scary, yeah. isn't it? That was where I had to rely on other people and friends and start talking about things because Sometimes it's just vocalizing stuff out loud where you realize that what makes sense in your head. <laughs> I just heard myself say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> nuts. Um, that doesn't make sense at all. But sometimes it was really my friends going, right, so hang on, your company is invested on putting you on this executive leadership course thing. And you think that's because you're a poor performer and need the help, not because you're a strong performer and they want to invest in you. And I was like, yes, I genuinely believe that. That was what I genuinely thought, um, which is, again, looking back on it, not, not a sensible conclusion to have drawn. But what's really interesting from your story, and I think a lot of people can relate to, I mean, I can relate to wearing a mask, right? And yeah. we wear the masks for months and months, maybe our whole life. We've been wearing some kind of mask in some kind of environment. And these expectations of what strength looks like, right? Like be strong, show up, provide. And then you're in survival mode a lot, which I think a lot of people yeah. can relate to as well, right? Because you've now, your house is flooded. Like these are your, your kind of primary kind of needs are being affected in, in so many ways. And then for you, it wasn't just one person. And I say that because sometimes when we're helping others, we're like, well, what difference will it make for me to say this one thing, right? And you had the coach and then the HR kind of professional person, and it sounds like some friends, and then finally the doctor, and you know, and you had this kind of almost team that weren't coordinated, but were your concerned kind of boardroom in a way that 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 kind of showed up when when you needed them. And so I say that just to highlight, you know, what people think help looks like, right? And they're like, oh, well, why should I say that one thing? But if you hear the same thing three times that day or in that week, right? And then you're at the doctor and the authority figure says it. I don't know. You needed all of those people to help you land the messages. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. I think it was coordinated um, because it was the coach that made me go to HR, and then HR did pull in, you know, t two other people, and the three of Got them it. like hit me after the doctor. So there was a kind of coordinated, um, and and yeah. weirdly, my mental picture of that is always a rugby kind of, you know, one person starts tackling you, and everybody else has to kind of pile on to because like pull you to the floor and make you stop and be like will you just just stop um but i mean i'm so well, i'm so incredibly grateful that they did. Mm. Um, of course because it would have it would have had to come to a head it was increasingly coming to a head and 
I actually stopped driving for a couple of months because my anxiety was at such a level that I wasn't kind of consciously present. And I had a couple of times where I would not, you know, I'd be driving down the motorway and I'd forget where I was or, you know, just wouldn't just really just brain fog you just yeah we'd, lose it we'd yeah have done a two-hour drive and not remember any of it um so that I don't know how much longer I could have done that without it being dangerous or frankly just ending up in a sopping heap somewhere in an office and then having to do something about it and you know the, the day that I was signed off I was still on project site I you know cried my way in <laughs> Uh, spoke to spoke to my career advisor. He'd been told um, by HR, and he was like, "I think we need to get you back here. You know, d- finish off your day, come back. Um, we'll we'll deal with it then." Um, and so I just kind of pulled myself together. I went and went went and ran a workshop for twenty five people, none of whom spotted a single thing wrong. Um, went and told my project lead at the end of the day that I I had to to step away and he said well I don't he said something really mild like I don't think you should have gone about it like that or something like that at which point I burst into tears on a I literally just went from I'm holding this together to and he was like oh my god (laughs) and then for the first time I think he realized just what had been kind of under the surface and then and then I never went back to that project site and as far as the team was concerned, I just, you know, I was there one minute and operating as normal and gone the next and they never knew why. And it's only sort of years later that I met up with some of them again and explained exactly what had happened. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's, it's taught me a lot of things. Um, one, The main one is just how good people can be at masking. And... And but also how much effort that masking will cost you, because it was, you know, I was kind of keeping my performance up there, but it was taking so much more effort. Everything that I had was getting poured into maintaining that facade that everything was okay. When it's it quite lonely as well, isn't it? It's kind of lonely being behind those masks where no one can really see what the real you. Yeah, and e- and even you know my my I guess fiance at the time didn't really I think know or or be allowed to see it and then you know he was he was hugely helpful and supportive once it once it all came out but yeah I was I was just very good at hiding it but you know I as I sort of went through that and it is absolutely one of the worst experiences of my life um I kind of promised myself that it would it would make me better that it would make me stronger, it would make me um, a better manager, a better friend, um, that I would learn from it. That's kind of what kept me going when I had that, you know, re- when the anxiety was really acute and the, the depression had, had kind of hit, that there was going to be something positive coming out of this. And that's kind of what led me when I was, you know, back and feeling stronger to start sharing my story and because I knew that I wouldn't be the only one and that's the that's the weird thing all of these people when it happened came out of the woodwork and were like yeah you know this has happened to me and and I was like yeah hang on 
I thought I was the only Where one. Where were you? I thought yes. I was literally the only one who couldn't cope with this and that it was something defective in me and I was I was weak and pathetic and, you know, I, I wasn't the person that everybody letting thought people I down. was and I was letting yeah. people down. Um, and then I realized that actually I wasn't the only one and this happened a lot and then just nobody was talking about it. I was like, who else is out there who's feeling the way I was feeling and and not knowing that? So I was like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna start start sharing. And that's why I can kind of Beautiful. continue to do that because every single time I have, somebody has said, you know, I thought I was alone and now I'm not. And I think that's that's such an important thing. And that's why we do so much story sharing uh, uh Avenard is because we want those experiences out there because there's so many varied experiences and so many people who feel alone and they aren't alone it's just that we're not talking so let's just talk more oh beautiful I feel like we could close there like that's the message (laughs) um but of course I still want to go into other places um but so when it comes to working in the space of well-being, mental health, and of course, you you work um, globally. It's kind of um, it's really simple, but not necessarily easy, right? So the simple bit is, you know, connection. We know, right? And science can back this up now. Um, connection, a feeling of belonging, uh, being able to reach out to one or two, five people. That's it, right? Can just help us realize we're not alone, uh, alleviate that suffering, and perhaps get us the help we need, yeah. right? Simple. Um, but of course, we've got all of our personal conditioning, which you you kind of mapped out there for you, which was like, wear the mask, show no weakness, like, uh, you know, uh, don't let people down. Um, and then we've got the the context uh, it, culturally and whether it's Avenad or another business, right? We have to work hard. We have we want to get a salary. There's all these other concepts, right, that go on within a workplace. So let's think globally for a second. Where do you even start when it comes to all the cultural nuance? And it's a complex task with that many people. It is. It is. And you've just got to start small and keep keep expanding. I mean, I, I don't think we've got it cracked yet. You know, that that I have to keep reminding myself it's a journey. You know, I'm, always, I'm one of those people who's always kind of looking at it and going, oh, I wish I'd achieved more. And I get to the end of the year and I look back and I think about all the stuff that I haven't done that I wanted to do and think, oh, damn it. Um, yeah. <laughs> because because I am aware that there's a person on the end of every single one of those. But, you know, again, you have to remind yourself that you can't change the world overnight and you've got to kind of, if you can change it for one or two people, then it is a big difference for them. So we've we've started we started kind of almost at a global level and and putting stuff out there for everybody and and inviting them to engage with it. But we are um, very conscious that, for example, even simple things like the way that um, you engage in, say. Um, Asian countries or even European countries versus American countries. And just in terms of energy levels, even if you've got, even if you're doing it in English and even if you're doing it, you know, the, the same topic, that kind of really high energy delivery that you might get for the US, just, you know, I, I, I think if I sit on a, on a webinar and I'm finding that like energy level, a bit much and a bit I think sometimes it can come across as a bit you know unauthentic to, to mm. you know a Brit viewing that kind informative of, you know, or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. awesome yeah, <laughs> that 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 type of energy um if, if I'm feeling that 
how is somebody in you know Singapore or Malaysia or Japan interpreting that? Because they're they're even more kind of conservative in in kind of the way that they communicate. And so even so, simple things like and and you know for because you deliver some of our yeah yeah, you know, yeah we'll yeah. deliver the same content and we'll have one version that might be much much slower lower energy levels and um, you know simpler language. Uh, for our sort of growth markets audience, and then we'll have another version that's much more high energy for our for our American audience. So even small tweaks like that, but we are now really quite kind of leaning into um, our area breakouts. So I've got um, I've now joined our inclusion and diversity team, and we are merging our inclusion, diversity, and well-being strategies. So, well done. Um, Ooh, our, I'm so excited about our this. Our area leads are now area leads for inclusion, diversity, and well-being. So that's going to enable us to be much more um, targeted in making sure that we're bringing the right um, interventions to the right places. Because, I mean, not, not all of our regions have the same challenges in the first no. place. So we need to be able to sort of adapt to that. But we also need to be able to be much more culturally nuanced in what we're delivering. And in fact, we do have um, we do have a training course that we designed last year, which is about um, leading for well-being and inclusion. And it's because we we acknowledge that, and it's not just Avanade; it's you know, companies in general. We've been selecting our leaders for the last twenty years, you know, on strategic vision and you know their ability to negotiate and be adaptable and all of these other traits and that you know those are the things that we've been teaching them how to do but we've not been selecting for empathy or authenticity and we've not been training them for people skills often exactly so now we're saying you know i think and and i do think covid had a big shift you know all of a sudden people's perception of what a, a, a leader should do and what they should be responsible for has changed and it's like, well, how are they set up for that? Because some of them are naturally very good at it, but others maybe don't have those skills. And, you know, empathy is a learned skill. So what are we doing to teach it? So we've got this new course that's, you know, helping those people. And we have adapted that. It's, it's delivered in multiple languages. But when we translated it, we didn't just translate it. We, we tweaked it for those regions as well. Um, to make sure that it landed and, you know, there's different examples of inclusion and exclusion or well-being scenarios or whatever in there to to make it relevant to those people so they can really engage with it and learn from it. Well, engagement is something as well. And I want to just, for our audience who aren't maybe in our world, just highlight why I got excited when you said you're you're kind of putting your well-being and inclusion diversity strategies together. And it's because, and you know this, Um, So many companies work in silos, right? So they've got departments that run those separate kind of things, well-being, mental health, perhaps there's even culture and engagement somewhere else, diversity, inclusion, right? And while that's fine, because there is nuance, there's then this challenge of engagement, right? And you kind of think, hmm, you're all on the same side, technically, right? But often internally, there might be vying for budgets, there might be, you know, just kind of staying in your silo, which is what that, that word sort of describes, right? And then the user on the other end, right, who gets now 10 emails a week about these initiatives and all the different things, right, and then can only attend one, so has to pick or, you know, there, there's there's almost this overwhelm, this kind of initiative overwhelm. 
And then we're all kind of going, why is engagement lower? Why aren't people showing up, right? And so a first step that so many people are not yet doing is combining some of these or making your comms plan at least combined, right? So that there feels like there's some 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 kind of uh, coordination perhaps to not overwhelm the poor user on the other end. But do you have any other thoughts just on the engagement element? Because everybody's different. 100% engagement is not necessarily the the gold standard, right? So what, what does good look like? How do we think about this? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've been on my soapbox a little bit over the last year as we've, because, you know, belonging is actually part of our cons- constructive well-being. So we have four pillars of well-being. Belonging is, is you know, one of those, those elements Beautiful. It sits under um, that that kind of heart element because we've got heart, mind, body, and soul. Um, and so, you know, we've been I've been partnering with IND for a long time, and it just when when we made my role in wellbeing permanent, it made sense to bring it together with that. And you're looking at, you know, do you set up a structure for wellbeing? Um, and then you think, well, what what would that look like? Well, you spend half your time interfacing with your counterparts in IND anyway. So actually, does it just make more sense to expand, you know, IND to wellbeing and and use that already established, um, you know, setup to actually deliver your yeah. wellbeing agenda? And and that's kind of the conclusion we came to was that it was a much more sensible sensible thing. Well, it's your internal brand, right? Keeping that consistent is is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and we, you know, we've got one set of plans, event planning for the year happens all together, all sort of feeding into the same thing that that works with our internal comms. I also sit on the citizenship council, um, okay. so I, you know, because c- for me, you know, responsible business has to have that sit citizenship the sustainability well-being and ind all kind of comes under the same umbrella and there's so many different touch points within that so you know working i think across that and we're talking about you know we used to have volunteer impact awards we've got our internal ind awards which this year ind and well-being awards but now we're talking about how do we make those human impact awards you know can we bring that together to be one thing and really, you know, consolidate down and make it, I think, do do less, but with higher engagement, rather than, you know, lo- yeah. lots of little things with a little bit of engagement, I don't think necessarily works. I think you can be smarter about how you go about it and and push those engagement levels up by picking the right things and making sure that they're really meaningful, and then really letting people lean into them. And if we just think high level for a moment, I know there's loads of detail in this, but you guys for some time have had a real strategic approach around this. What are some of the two or three key elements that you think a, a useful well-being strategy should include? <laughs> I mean, we, we've this was a, this was an easy bit for me, but I know that it isn't for a lot of organizations. And, right. I, and I know when I speak to other organizations just how lucky I am on this one. And that is having the right sponsorship. So um, from our CEO through to our chief people officer, through to our chief inclusion officer, who I, I report into, you know, everybody is really supportive of this agenda. I've got an executive sponsor who sits on our executive committee as well. You know, it is absolutely, you know, supported and endorsed at the highest levels. And, you know, I, I, 
I never had that pushback when they when I sat down, wrote a well-being strategy, got all the research, put it together and said, right, this is what I want to do. And this is why it is a performance driver for our business. And we need to make it a priority. They didn't say, no, that's an awful idea. My chief people officer said, excellent, let's make this happen. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's yeah, the, the attitude I got. Yeah. And that that has been so, so important to be able to move forward. Um, so getting that leadership, and I know you've done a lot of um, talking about how you actually go yeah. about getting that, but getting that sponsorship is so important. And then, you know, leadership generally is a, as a topic, you know, because behaviors cascade. So what you see your leaders doing, what you see people getting rewarded for, really super important. So making sure that our leaders know how to lead for well-being. And it's, I think a lot of the time you can have people who are empathetic and do want to, to help, but they don't know how. We've not taught them how to do that in a workplace. You know, most people have comforted a friend who's got divorced or had a bereavement or, or whatever. We've done that in our personal lives, but we're not sure of what the boundaries are when we bring it into the workplace. So leadership's a really kind of key piece for us. Um, and then there's there's a really big structural element to this for me. You know, how do we do business? How do we go about how we work? You know, it's not just about policies. Policies and processes come into it. But, you know, how do we set ourselves up for success and make sure we're not damaging our people in the first place? You know, that, that I think it needs to come into some well-being policies a lot, uh, sorry, some well-being strategies a lot more. Um, Agreed. You know, sometimes they see yeah. it, you know, the focus is on benefits or it's on, you know, everyone's going, oh, I've got this new app or, you know, if if nobody ever presented a well-being app to me again, I don't think I'd lose any sleep, honestly. You probably have more time in your day to invest in yourself anyway. Yeah, they, yeah. They, those emails don't necessarily get as much attention as as the vendors might hope. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, they're kind of leaning into this idea that it's our people that are the problem and we need to fix them and therefore we'll give them some way of, of supporting rather than considering maybe that it's the workplace environment that drives a lot of this and actually we need to fix the root cause. So... Beautiful. Yeah. And, and the world of work is changing. As we know, we've got technology, AI, like that's all the buzz as far as how the world of work is going to change with regardless of whether we want to or not, and how the people element will be restructured in a variety of ways. Um, how do you feel about the future of work? If we just think um, of like, what people are saying is coming? <sighs> Personally. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, as somebody who was using ChatGPT to write a lot of stuff yesterday, um, you know, some of it, I, I think there is there is potential to massively remove some of the drudge of work. Um, but doing doing it in an ethical way, I think, is going to be really important, and certainly because because. That's one of the things we do with one of the world's largest, um, you know, Microsoft partners. We will be absolutely at the forefront of helping of implement AI in other people's businesses. So making sure that we've got a really strong foundation for, you know, around the ethics and frameworks that we need to put around AI is really important. Um, 
But in terms of, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, how's this going to impact people's well-being? And what's right. what's that going to do? And, you know, and I don't have a good answer for that yet. It's, it's you know, it needs smarter than people than me to think kind of that that far ahead. I think certainly in terms of of it being a disruptor, I think it's causing a lot of people quite a lot of uncertainty in, you know, what what is going to get removed, what's that going to mean in terms of the larger workforces. Um, but when I think about, you know, will we, I mean, I have seen a CBT enabled chatbot already that uses AI yep. to respond to you, you know, so will we see um, EAPs, for example, you know, employee sort of counsellors, assistance you know, programs, yeah. those types of things, will we see that using AI and you being able to go and get, you know, responses from that and, you know, what what's the risks around that? Um, but then some people, and I'm thinking, you know, I couldn't tell anybody the situation I was in or I didn't feel like, feel I could. Would I have been more comfortable seeking advice maybe from something that I knew was inanimate and didn't have a judgment to make? You know, maybe it could actually help people engage with, with services that at the moment they're they're too scared to use. Especially that first tier and that triaging element, yeah. right? Where so when you call the EAP and you reach a helpline and they just ask you a lot of questions, but yet tell you it's anonymous, it's very disconcerting for people, right? So I could see, I was recently at a round table discussing empathy and AI and sort of what that kind of connection was and what people sort of need. Um, so I can see that that kind of accessibility element for people would be great. But, and, and I think the people who are going to thrive as ever, evolution, right, are those of us who uh, are resilient, ha can adapt and can ride with change and adapt what we know yeah. as well. So continue to learn and develop our brain. It's those of us who like hold on tight and are like, don't change, you know, um, maybe it won't if I don't look uh, that that kind of end up suffering. Right. Because we don't evolve our skills or, or move forward in uh, in different different ways. Um, but at the same time, what have we seen through pandemic times for our younger generation? I've got two teenagers. Right. Um, in, in, in using, um, you know, all the social media and all that, you know, you go on a train and everyone's like that, right? Whether it's reading, whether it's whatever they're doing. And then the loneliness statistics are up, the, the disconnection. And we, in our jobs, right, we know that that's the fundamental issue that is affecting us. Because if we can't talk, right, and connect and have hard conversations, well-being is also about hard conversations, right? misunderstandings, assumptions, all this stuff, polarization. And then we see all this kind of, you know, crises happening, right? So I can certainly see that if we don't learn to have difficult conversations and be able to connect and evolve together, that's where I see the risk more than just the technology, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that because you are kind of connecting with something that's inanimate and it's letting you um, you know, maybe if it's an uncomfortable situation or an uncomfortable conversation, you don't force yourself to, have to do it that, you know, by speaking to a real person. You do it through, through you know, going into a chat bot and getting an answer from that. And I'm, th I'm thinking now, you know, what, what would have happened today if I'd asked for that um, sabbatical policy? You know, because... Uh. I would have gone into an AI chatbot and said, I need this classical yeah. policy and it would have given me this classical policy and nobody would have known. 
You know, nobody. So, so, right. so what human touch points are we losing? And so I think how we add, how we keep the humanity in some of those processes is going to be really important. And how we, how we, you know, keep our creativity around things. Because I think that that's the bit that AI can't do for us. It can't create, it can't, it can't care. It can pretend to care, but it doesn't really, and we know it. So, you know, that those I think are going to be things we really have to lean into as we go through this journey. And I just, the thing I'm seeing so often with our kids as well, and anyone who is isolated is like that many people are out of practice now in simple socialization, right? Like, oh, okay, we can talk about, talk about the football scores and what's on in the news and what's tough out there, right? That's like our little trauma connecting point. Um, but it's harder, I think, for people to, to go, hey, I, I, I misunderstood that. Can I just check something? Or um, how are you really? Like, I, I noticed this thing, I might be wrong, but I just wanted to find out and just maybe we can grab coffee. Like, I feel like people are out of practice. What do you think? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's not something that I've seen particularly. It's, it's, I know that other people have talked about it a little bit, um, but it's not something I've kind of got firsthand experience of. What I, what I find is that um, a lot of people are less, less willing to lean in maybe. So it's not like the skills have gone, um, but it's more, I mean, I, I was in the office this week for the first time in, you know, several months. I, I work in a global role. It's four hour round trip for me to be in the office. You know, why would I go to London to speak to somebody in Singapore? I mean, it's just, it's just yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you know, it was it was really lovely being there. But you know, I was talking to other people, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't get in very often either." <laughs> you know, and and it's because we've kind of got used to not having that burden of the commute or the cost of the commute, or you know, maybe people have have managed to find some new balance in their home lives that they didn't have before, and and now that you know, they don't want to lean back out of their home life mm. you know they they've got used no. to putting their kids to bed or having dinner with their spouse or you know in my case going and playing squash and you know whatever else I do of an evening and and we don't want to give that up so there's a reticence but I think there's still a you know I, it certainly wasn't something that I I picked up this week when we were together that anybody was less good at it than they had been a couple of years ago there was almost like a I would say the opposite, almost like a a real enthusiasm to make the most of it because it was it was so, you know rare and precious and therefore all that more um, exciting to be together to tackle. Yeah. yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I think it I think it's industry dependent. So I think I'm seeing different industries who are more in that survival mode still. You know, who are finding less time for those connections even when they're on offer. Um, but certainly, there's that need i think a desperate need for many of I us i think you're right that there's a reduction in connection so as like before before covid you know we connected in person and that's what we did during covid we were really purposeful about connecting online and then we kind of yes. got to this point now where it's we're kind of back to in person but we're not really we're kind of half and half and we've lost a lot of the personal connection but we're we've stopped being purposeful about 
how we connect in, in yes that kind of con- conscious attention yeah, so to that it. conscious yeah. attention is gone and i think that's left us in a worse place than we have been for the you know the last few years even during covid because at least then it was you know we were all in a similar situation and we were all being very right. purposeful and making sure that we lent into that and now we're in this kind of you know <laughs> neither fish nor fowl kind of it should just be happening yeah, automatically. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're kind of assuming that it will be automatic like it was because we've got some face-to-face interaction, but actually it isn't. And I think for, for me, because I, I live still very much in the, the remote world, um, I'm still very purposeful about that. So we still have a, a bi-weekly cuppa catch-up with some of my, my colleagues yeah. who aren't people I work with on a regular basis, but... You know, it's just an excuse to sit there and talk to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's a really good thing. But I, I think for a lot of people, that that isn't there. They've lost yeah, it. We've, yeah, we've lost it. And, and I think it's really easy to do. Um, but the one thing I've never found a good, um, a, a good virtual solution for is that kind of, um, chance meeting thing. So the mm, fact that the spontaneity, yeah, the spontaneity. So so even though I've been quite good at kind of catching up with my existing network, that network expansion is is there's less opportunity there in a virtual world than there is when you can be face to face. You know, you don't you don't bump into somebody making a cup of coffee, or you're not chatting to somebody that you already know. When somebody you don't know walks up and they introduce you, you know, you'll be on the phone, you'll be on a team's call with one person, then you'll be on a team's call with a different person. You know, they'll say, I've got to go because I've got some so-and-so ringing. They won't, they won't introduce you as part of that. No, that's true. That, the, those organic introductions. Yeah. Um, now, Emily, I know I could talk to you all day. I feel like we could write the entire world if we just stayed on for eight hours. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you one final question because we haven't got that much time. Uh, in fact, two, because I might sneak it in. But well, one question is, and I ask this to all guests yeah. on, on the show, what do you think is the most radical change you think we need when it comes to well-being and the focus on mental health we see in the world today? Big question. It could be anything, big or small. What do you reckon? So this is this is the only question you gave me beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> so I have been having a think about this. And I thought, you know, do I take this from a personal perspective or a societal perspective or an organizational perspective? And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a well-being lead. That's my job. It's just, you know, so I'm going to come at this from an organizational perspective. And, and I've touched on this briefly a few minutes ago, but let's, let's lean into it, you know, properly. And that, that is this. I am a big fan of something called the positive opposite assumption. It's a brilliant coaching technique that I got taught a few years back and, and it's really useful. And it's basically you take, a, you know, you examine an assumption you're making, you look at it and you go, okay, is it an assumption? If it's an assumption, is there a more positive assumption that may be, you know, different than that that I can make instead? So that's the coaching technique. And what I would like us to do is take the negative opposite assumption in this particular case. So uh. the particular assumption that I'm talking about is that as companies, I think we also often assume that when somebody's having mental health issues or you know well-being issues, that the problem is the employee, or it's external. You know, it's 
it's the employee yeah, or you know the the situation they're in the environment around them or you know it's it's external circumstances you know it's what's going on in the world or even you know if it is something internal to our organization it's one person you know it's just that particular leader or you know that particular employee that maybe has got a clash with the employee that's having the issues um and that i think leads us to a set of of interventions by their very nature that focus on employees and kind of fixing employees right the map yeah. And that's mm-hmm. why you've got so many well-being apps, because if your assumption is that it's the people that's, that are, you know, broken in inverted commas in yep. some way, shape or form, then that's what you're trying to fix. And I would like us to make the opposite assumption. We have seen so much research from, you know, like people like the wonderful McKinsey Health Institute talking about how toxic workplace environment are by far and away the biggest drivers of workplace burnout. And yet we're still making this assumption that it's something to do with the individual and it's not something systemic about our businesses. And I don't just mean, I don't mean Avanade, I mean businesses in general, the way that the whole workplace goes about um, treating our employees. So I'm wondering what would happen if we made the negative opposite assumption that we are at fault, that if there's a problem with one of our employees, the first place we should look is what is the environment? What is the culture? What what is the structure we're putting around those employees that have caused us to end up in that place? And then I think, what are the different thoughts, the different behaviors and the different outcomes we would drive if we took that assumption? Because you wouldn't be looking for things that changed the individual or supported the individual. You would be, you'd be thinking, well, how do I, you know, how do I change what we're doing here if i'm if i make the assumption that we are the ones causing the damage what would that lead me to do so you know for me this year that's got me thinking well which well-being leads of our clients do i need to sit down with how do i get together with you know because we've got clients i know have well-being leads so they're looking at well-being internally we're looking at well-being internally how do we get together to say how do we now, what frameworks or what setups can we put in place for our joint product teams to make sure that they are delivering in a healthy way? How do we do that? What would that look like if we could get that right for our people? Yeah, there's still going to be personal things that go on and we're still going to need to support that. But how could we transform people's well-being if we took away some of those fundamental stresses, which is toxic workplace behaviors? And I think that that for me could, you know, revolutionize where we think we should spend our time as well-being professionals. Beautiful. Emily, Ooh, thank you so much for, for your time. I think there's a lot of food for thought there. I mean, we can just go into meeting culture. We can go into leadership. The, the whole future of work needs to evolve and it isn't just about fixing an individual. Uh, beautiful. Emily, if people want to get in touch with you or connect with you to further the conversation, where can they go? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm connected with you. I'm commenting on your stuff quite a lot. I think I'm fairly easy to find on the Avenard and um, and my LinkedIn profile. So yeah, they can find me there. Perfect. Area. Yeah, yeah. We'll put your LinkedIn profile in in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and spending uh, giving us your your wisdom and advice. And now I'm always thinking of you as an astrophysicist, though, <laughs> even though you're a well being lead. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fetcher. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you got loads of ideas on how you can be the change and disrupt well-being in your world and your workplace. If you want to hear any more about our guests or the resources we mentioned, check out our show notes. And of course, find your workplace benefits at perks.com and all your strategy or training needs at petrabelzebor.com. I'm so excited for future conversations. Please do join us for the next episode of Disrupting Wellbeing with massively interesting conversations and guests who will give you practical ideas to be the change you want to see in the world. See you next time.